the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Reflections on all things Super Bowl and then important leadership lessons learned along the way. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Monday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today on a Monday afternoon in what feels like should be a... Doesn't this always feel like this should be a day off? A day off of school, a day off of work. Like Super Bowls, I I got two thoughts on this because Super Bowl Sunday is such a big deal. And I can think about my kids like up so late, eating, eating junk food, watching the Super Bowl. It should either be, these are my two, my two things. It should either be a holiday Monday after the Super Bowl, which by the way, if the NFL can get one more week added to their season, which is crazy, but you know, it all just prints money. So they might do it. Uh, one of the benefits is it would probably move the Super Bowl to president's weekend. And then this would in fact happen, but I feel like this should either be a day off or let's move from Super Bowl Sunday to Super Bowl Saturday. Now that would hurt us as pastors and people showing up to church, but I'm thinking about the kids and school and this and that. So those are my two things, because I don't know about you, but trying to wake up my children this morning, whoa, uh, there was part of me that was like, let's not even bother. But what a game last night. Uh, I'm not here on this show to necessarily recap the game, but except to say uh, it felt like the first two hours of the game yesterday were like, what? This is feels like a preseason game. Like it wasn't very good. It wasn't very the, the only excitement in it was that it was close, but it wasn't like a well-played game. But that last hour was maybe I heard somebody on ESPN today call it the best hour of the Super Bowl ever. Now, that feels like hyperbole. Let me just remind you as a Giants fan, the the the, the ending of the two Patriots games in 07 and 11. But Whatever your team is, that last hour yesterday was just ridiculous. And you just felt like Mahomes was going to win that thing. And especially once it got to overtime and then the 49ers kicked the field goal, you're like, I don't know. Because here's the weird thing. The 49ers felt better to me. They felt better. But the the Chiefs are the new Patriots. They are. You, you can't make mistakes. They're going to beat you. And Patrick Mahomes is the new Tom Brady. He is just people. Most people already have him as like the second greatest quarterback of all time. The guy's 28 years old. So uh, to watch him do his thing last night as the fourth quarter progressed into overtime. And you're like, I don't know. I don't feel like like the first three quarters. It really felt like the 49ers were dominating both sides of the ball. And you were just like, if they, if you let him hang around here, uh, it's, it's gonna, he's gonna get you. And that is exactly what happened. So yet again, the Kansas City Chiefs, their third Super Bowl in five years. That is a dynasty if there ever was one. And they're still young. 
their defense, I believe the quote was that they are the youngest defense or the second youngest defense in the playoffs this year. So uh, they're not going anywhere. So congratulations. And now we are into two things. If you're a football fan, we are in the draft season, and that matters greatly around here in Chicago because the Chicago Bears have the number one pick in the draft. What are they going to do with it? Uh, are they taking Caleb Williams or another quarterback? Are they trading it and keeping Justin Fields? Now that the Super Bowl is over, the Bears kind of become the the football story. It really becomes what they are. But most importantly for those of us uh, who care out there, it's baseball season now, people. I think pitchers and catchers report next week, and uh, that is spring. That is summer. That is, uh, you know, what what many of us enjoy the most. So, uh, great Super Bowl, great end of the season. Happy baseball season. That's what it is for many of us today. But with the Super Bowl, there's so much more going on around it. A little bit later, we're going to talk about commercials, particularly the Jesus commercials that were being. Uh, talked about all over Twitter, but we're going to talk about what our favorite commercials were as well in a little bit. But then you got all this other stuff going on. Uh, Taylor Swift, is she going to make it? Isn't she going to make it? She's there. Uh, gambling, props, you've got ticket prices. Did you see an hour before the game for a bad seat was going for $9,000 last night? Uh, that was crazy. Uh, but then you got the halftime show. And so Usher was the halftime show. And I'm going to say a couple different things about the Usher halftime show. One, that guy is so smooth. The way he dances. Uh, so I enjoyed watching it. I know that anytime there's a halftime show, for the most part, there's all sorts of um, opinions about is it good? Is it not good? Blah, 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 blah. But nothing makes me feel older than the halftime show. Because, A, I didn't know – I knew, like, one of his songs. And, and B, every of one of – just about every one of his guests that came on, right? Like, he'd be doing a song, and then clearly somebody famous, other than Alicia Keys. I knew Alicia Keys when she got on the piano. All the other ones, I had no idea who they were. I was having to ask my kids, who is that? Who is that? Who is that? We're looking up people. And I thought to myself, oh, I've reached that age now where the Super Bowl halftime show happens. And I'm like, I don't know who that is. I have no idea who that is. Like, really, one of the only people I knew who they were yesterday was Reba McIntyre singing the national anthem. Like, it was a little bit uh, humbling. So uh, halftime show was awesome. And at the same time, it made me feel old because I was like, what is going on? So all things Super Bowl, a great fun time last night. Whether you stayed home or whether you uh, went to a Super Bowl party, hopefully you had a good time. You didn't eat crazy too much amounts of food. You're doing okay today, kind of getting back into the swing of things and glad you're here. I do want to mention one non-Super Bowl-related story from the weekend from the Christian world. Uh, that was the death at the age of 88 of Henry Blackaby. You might be thinking to yourself, who's Henry Blackaby, uh, author of the wildly best-selling book and curriculum and all of that called uh, Experiencing God? Uh, Experiencing God. Uh, that's a Bible study that sold more than eight million copies. 
and the quote about him from the president of Lifeway, who was his longtime publisher. Henry was a great man of God and minister to the body of Christ, beginning with his time as a local church pastor and continuing through his ministry as an author and a Bible teacher. You know, he he was he he worked at a church and they kind of turned this church around uh, and that became the lessons and the basis of uh, experiencing God. He he was in Saskatoon. Faith Baptist Church had 10 members. And under his leadership, the church not only grew, it eventually sponsored a college and 38 other churches. So just unbelievable. And I'll end it with this. Experiencing God Bible study sold more than 8 million copies in English alone and was also translated into more than 75 languages. He'd go on to found a ministry uh and uh, yeah, in 2013, he went missing for more than 24 hours while having after having a heart attack while driving. And he was found and then uh, received the help and the surgery that he needed. Uh, I don't know his story. We're very careful on this show to try to not uh, hold up Christian celebrities or make them perfect. But with that said, when you read his stuff, you don't see this scandal or this scandal or this scandal. So I do wanted, I did want to pause and celebrate every pastor or, or many just Christians. We've got experiencing God on our shelves. It's right there. I could go to my, where my books are and I could pull experiencing God out right now. So a life well lived passing away at the age of 88, Henry Blackaby. Uh, if you don't know his story, Google it today and go back and check it out. But one thing I'm excited about in the coming days, especially tomorrow, you're going to get we're going to start parading through here a lot of local pastors, authors, local ministry leaders and just bringing them through and going, hey, um, just come share your story, share about your church or what you see God doing. Uh, and I'm really excited to do that. So you're going to want to check a bunch of those out during the course of this week. Uh I saw this tweeted, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis quote, and it was, oh, no, this was at the Denison Forum, our old friend Jim Denison. And he asks the question, how can we stand near the fire today? So here we go. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis noted this. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They're a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? And Jim Dennison asked the question, how can we stand near the fire today? And he's going to give some thoughts to it. But think about that question. This reminds us a lot of Jesus's words out of uh, the book of John, I believe, where Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me and you will bear much fruit. That's kind of what Lewis is talking about here. 
How do we remain in Christ? How do we stay connected to the vine? And what happens when we are connected to the vine versus what happens when we are disconnected to the vine? To use Lewis's language, if we want to get warm, what happens if we are not near the fire? If you want to get wet, you have to get into the water. So we could take Denison's question, how can we stand near the fire today and ask it a different way, the way Jesus frames it in the Bible, how can we stay connected to the vine? How can we stay united with Christ? Because the promise is, remain in me and you will bear much fruit. Not you might, not hopefully, you know, we can unpack what that fruit is. We know what the fruits of the Spirit is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's also the, the fruit of kingdom work where you see God do amazing things in you and through you. And that the key to life is to be connected to the vine. To use Lewis's language, to stand near the fire. So first of all, let's do a little self-assessment, can we? Are you connected to the vine in any meaningful way? Are you near the fire? Or, right, the rest of Jesus' image, is it says when I'm the vine, you are the branches. When a branch is not connected to the vine, it withers and dies. But when it's connected to the vine, it grows and prospers and bears much fruit. Are you near the fire? Are you connected to the vine? And then uh, Dennison asks, how can we stand near the fire today? Let me give you some of his thoughts. He says, make Christ the king of your life and day. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Spend this day in his presence. He quotes John chapter 15. Abide in me. So I just talked about abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He then goes on to say, think biblically and act redemptively. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John chapter 8, there's that word abide again. If you abide in my word, if you sit in my word, if you are, are, are connected to the vine through his word, then you're my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the last one he says is name your greatest challenge. Then with confidence, Hebrews four, draw near to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Draw near to the throne of grace. Name your greatest challenge. Draw near to the throne of grace. Denison goes on to share the Anglican Bishop Thomas Ken back in 1637. That's when he was born. Uh, he penned a prayer that God will use to transform any who dare pray its words from their hearts. But I guess the question raised here is, do you dare pray these words? 
Because overlying this entire discussion is, do you want to abide in the vine? Do you want to be, do you want to be under the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Do you want that for your life? Because if not, then don't pray this prayer. But if you long to know his presence, if you long to know his power, if you long to know as to use uh, C.S. Lewis's words, the heat and be near the fire, then our uh, Anglican Bishop Thomas Ken penned this prayer. Direct, control, suggest this day all I design or do or say that all my powers with all their might in thy soul glory may unite. Is that a prayer you want to pray? Direct, control, suggest this day all I design or do or say that all my powers with all their might in thy soul glory may unite. Remain in me. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Remain in me. Abide in me. And you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, branches die. They wither away. Will you abide in Christ? Is he the Lord of your life? Do you long for him to be the one to whom you follow? Good words there from C.S. Lewis. Challenging words. I have to ask myself, where am I abiding? What do I want with my life? All right, youth sports. Uh, it is, uh, this is youth sports, for those of you who fight against travel sports, for those of you who fight against them, uh, let me just say this, toothpaste is out of the bottle. Youth sports are only going to grow, travel sports, and they are here to stay. Uh, travel soccer, travel basketball, uh, my family kind of is involved in travel baseball. Um, and so I can only speak from my family, baseball. Uh, my son loves baseball. Uh, my daughter has played travel volleyball and travel uh, softball. Um, but right now it's just baseball. And the way travel baseball works is you get into a program. Uh, good. Hopefully you look for one with good instruction where they're not going to burn out their arms. They're going to do good stuff. They're going to take care of your kid. Uh, but then the summer becomes dominated by games and uh, they can be pretty competitive. And the word travel is in there for a reason. My son and his team, they play a lot of games locally, but then they'll have a tournament in Indy. They'll have a tournament in Iowa. They'll, they've gone so far. We went to a tournament a couple of years ago in Florida and Myrtle Beach. And, um, and it's fun, but it takes up a lot of time and it can take up a lot of money. Um. And the reason that this is a big deal in the church world um, is that it's causing a lot of people to miss church, not just on Sundays, but just investing in church at all. Why? Because a lot of practices and a lot of games occur Saturday and Sunday now. Like when I was a kid, Sunday was still pretty uh, set apart. But nowadays, that's not the case. It is. Um, there's as many things and games on Sunday as there are on Saturdays. And so there are people for entire seasons at my church that I won't see because I know that they're involved in sports. And so uh, pastors and 
church leaders kind of shake their fist at this. This isn't way it should be. But I kind of take the tact of, hey, this is how it is. Why and what do we do about it? Like, how does the church of now not just hold on to how things were back in the day and shake their fist at the sky, but how do we say, okay, how do we adapt? How do we do this? How do we reach people uh, who are doing the travel sports thing? And I know people, you know, who have offered other services, but I also know of people who have tried to teach and teach, uh, encourage their people to see the travel sports team as, you know, kind of where God has placed them, all of these different things. So, uh, or before I talk about it as a church, uh, can I also say to some of you, well, the one thing that scares me, even uh, a couple years after we started it, is that the travel sports world is getting younger and younger and younger couple things. If you're a parent of a young kid who's already in travel sports, we're talking like eight, nine, even 10. Uh, remember that the travel sports world exists to make money. So you might think little Johnny is going to end up in the NFL draft or whatever else. Don't put that pressure on travel sports exists to make money. So just have your eyes open. Number two, uh, I know baseball, right? You're eight-year-old, nine-year-old does not need to be practicing all year round. That's in fact bad for them. They will burn out from the game, but also hurt their arm. So um, on one uh, one of my son's teams over the last couple of years, one of the boys, one of the good players on my son's team, his dad is a, is a well-known former major leaguer. I'll, I'll leave it at that. And we'd get talking and he would always say, I don't let my son from the end of the year in August throw a ball until November. And like if a, if a well-known, really successful major leaguer, that's his tact, why do you have your nine-year-old throwing and playing fall ball and doing stuff in September after having just played a full season? So just be aware. They're making money off you, and that's okay. But just know what's going on and protect your kid and be smart and protect your family as well. Okay, that's my soapbox moment. But the bigger thing here is Ryan Burge. He's a uh, a pastor, but also he's a research guy and a teacher. He wrote this and it got me thinking. He said, a theory, the rise in travel sports is just folks searching for a way to find community. As the movie Bowling Alone detailed, every other social organization in the U.S. has died. The Elks, Boy Scouts, even churches. Travel sports are an excuse for folks to sit around and talk. The games are secondary. Uh, I think he's right and wrong as one who has done this. He's wrong in the sense of there are a lot of people who are thinking who do it because they think it's going to make their kid uh, a star athlete in high school and college, even into the pros or whatever. So that there are people who are investing this sort of money and doing this sort of things um, in order to thinking their kid's going to be great and get a scholarship or something. But I also think he's 100% right. I would say this, during the travel baseball season uh, or the high school school season or the football season when my son plays or the... Whatever sport they're in, my wife and I spend more time with those parents than we do with people from our church, from our neighborhood. Like those are the people we spend a lot of time with. 
and laugh and travel. Like there's something fun about like you go to a travel league tournament in Indy and you're all in a hotel and then you all go out to dinner at night and you all are hanging out and you make good friendships. And I do think he's right. Where are the places in our society where community, true community bonding over something is happening? If anything, we're becoming more isolated. And so to have this outlet where you know at a game you're going to sit with the same people and you're going to laugh and you're going to invest and you're going to do this, I think he's right. Like we'll go through the travel baseball season and become really close with these people and then not really talk to them again until the next baseball season. And so the obvious takeaway here for us church people is this. The church has always been what's supposed to function this way. We throw the word community in our churches. I've got it in mind. But yet most churches do not seem to be forming any meaningful community. And so people go looking for it in other places. Travel sports being one of them. Is your church a community, even a family? Or is it just the park district where people come and go, get what they want, get, get, get the programs that they want, and move on to the next thing? We're meant to be community, family. And I do believe he's right that as people find that sort of thing within their churches, they're still going to play travel sports and do all the other things that make them busy. But church will be one of their priorities. Again, don't just shake your fist. Go, why won't they come? Well, what, what's the draw? What's the draw? And you're probably thinking, oh, it's my sermon or worship. No, really. What's the draw? For somebody to make the choice every Sunday to go, I'm going to church. It's community. It's connection. It's being known and worshiping Jesus with these people that they are close to. I think churches, we really need to be thinking uh, about community. And that's a good question for us to be wrestling with. Uh it's Valentine's Day this week. I actually forgot. This sounds terrible. Um, you know, when you're dating or you are engaged or early marriage, Valentine's Day is like, hey, it's Valentine's Day. <laughs> let's uh, let's do some fun stuff. And I love my wife more than I've ever loved her. Love my wife to death. And her and I have had zero conversations about Valentine's Day, which is this Wednesday. I uh, wonder about yourself, but it's just different. I love the stage her and I are in right now. Like it's just different. Uh, that stage when you're newlyweds or whatever else and you're you're like, OK, I, I'm going to, uh, you know, wine and dine or we're going to go on dates for everything. It's our six month anniversary. It's our whatever else it might be. And Valentine's is a big one. But I. I all right, I'm challenged now. I need to talk to my wife. What are we doing for Valentine's Day? What does she want to do? Uh, but it gets us thinking about marriage and the concept. This is fascinating that this was a, at the Wall Street Journal. I'm going to read you. It's kind of long. So if you stay with me, but uh, University of Virginia sociologist Brad Wilcox argued uh, that the soulmate view of love is wrong. So I want you to think about this. Uh, Brad Wilcox is going to tell us this idea, and this is good about Valentine's Day, this idea of we all find our soulmate. He wants to say that it's not true. So let's read what he had to say. And again, this is the Wall Street Journal of all places. He says this. 
The problem with the soulmate model is that it offers a view of marital love that is hard to sustain. One focused on the ebb and flow of romantic feelings. Seeing marriage this way is attractive on its face because romance is so charming. But as an ideal, it can make it more difficult for husbands and wives to embrace a richer, more stable, and ultimately more satisfying idea of marriage beyond the me-first spirit of soulmate love. For those seeking a soulmate, what matters is emotional skills and the ability to spark romantic or sexual chemistry. These qualities are supposed to put men and women on the path to what they see as the primary goods of marriage, intimacy, self-expression, and self-fulfillment. Again, that's this guy's feelings as to what the primary goods of marriage are. The problem, of course, is that very few couples can maintain this romantic high. No one person, no one relationship can give us pleasure, great pleasure and great happiness all or even most of the time. Couples who embrace the soulmate model are often left disappointed by the real world realities of love and marriage. There's the takeaway. Couples who embrace the soulmate model are often left disappointed by the real world realities of love and marriage. Uh, what do you think about that? Because I think we've all, from watching movies, rom-coms, Disney movies, whatever else it might be, we all somewhere along the line have figured out or, or kind of buy into the belief that there are um, – we're going to live happily ever after. You're going to find your soulmate. Uh, you're going to go happily ever after. And that plays into this, if I can just find my soulmate. If I can just find that person and then we can build this relationship and then we just get to the wedding day and then we just get married, then wedded bliss for the rest of our lives. And then when the actual marriage starts and there are difficulties and hard times, you go, well, this must not be my soulmate. As opposed to viewing marriage as two imperfect people whose love grows, who love each other deeply and who who fight for the marriage, who, who enjoy the good times and, and, and fight for it during the difficult times. And that that grows an emotional, loving, agape love connection that is much deeper than the romantic love of honeymoon period and early dating and whatever else it might be. That that's the good stuff of marriage. But when we think the our partner... Like if I think that Carrie is going to um, to fill all of my needs and, and all of the things that are lacking in my own life, she that's putting a pressure on her that she cannot bear and was never meant to bear. But when we buy into that, then what happens is when they can't fulfill that, we go, well, she's the problem. He's the problem. Maybe I didn't find my right soulmate and keep teasing this out. So let me get a divorce. And go find my soulmate. Go on that search for my soulmate. Never realizing the problem is probably with you. Like you're some sort of perfect soulmate for your spouse. Marriage is awesome. My life is so much better in infinite ways. Because I met and married Carrie. So I don't want to be one of the people who's like, oh, you just have to endure marriage. I love marriage. 
But the love that my wife and I have has a depth to it because we've endured through hard times, because we've gone through um, the difficulties of life hand in hand, because we've cried together and laughed together and experienced life together. There's a richness to our marriage now after 24 years that most certainly wasn't there in year one or two. When we would have said, oh, you're my soulmate, you complete me, right? The old uh, Jerry Maguire, you complete me. That idea of you complete me uh, has doomed many a marriage. I don't look to my spouse to complete me. I look to my spouse to hand in hand navigate life with and laugh with and cry with and um, raise a family with and, you know, Carrie is supposed to um, put my needs ahead of hers and I'm supposed to put her needs ahead of mine. And this kind of mutual self-sacrifice leads to a God-honoring marriage. So as we go towards Valentine's Day, I thought this was a helpful read. How do you view the role of your spouse in your life? Or if you're not married, what are you looking for? Do you believe in this kind of soulmate? They are going to complete me and live happily ever after. Or do you believe what he says here? No one person or one relationship can give us great pleasure and great happiness all or even most of the time. And couples who embrace the soulmate model are often left disappointed by the real world realities of love and marriage. Here's what's fascinating. As far as I can tell, this was not written by a Christian. This is not the Christian marriage guru getting up and saying, oh, it's all about growing in Christ. And this, that, like, this is a guy going, as far as I can tell, there's no faith aspect to this. And apart from faith, he's still going, yeah, it's, you can't have this model. Doesn't work. So as you move, if you're married, don't be like me and forget about Valentine's Day. Lean into it. Love, 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 agape love, phileo love, all the loves that we read about in the Bible. Still date your spouse. And again, when we have these serious conversations about marriage, I don't want to give the impression that marriage is some sort of drudgery or something we endured. No, marriage is the best. Love being married to my wife. But don't put more on your spouse than was meant to be put on them. Don't put more on your marriage than was meant to be put on it. And then go enjoy Valentine's Day. Go celebrate together. Okay, I want to end today's show. We've had some fun today talking Super Bowl, Super Bowl commercials, me feeling old, listening to uh, Usher's halftime show. We've talked about some deep stuff too. Uh, marriage as we get towards Valentine's Day. What makes marriage great? Uh, another pastor who's fallen at a church and the, the importance of character in our churches. If you've missed any of these shows, uh, go get the podcast, wherever it is, get your podcast, just subscribe rate review. That often does help us out a bunch. It helps other people find the podcast. Uh, but I want to end with a devotion. Um, I want to end with a devotion from in touch ministries before the break. I misspoke. I said in touch ministries, Charles Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll in touch ministries is Charles Stanley, uh, both great men of Christ um, Charles Stanley passed away in, within the last couple of years, I believe. Um, 
But at the In Touch Ministries Daily Devotions, we read this. From emptiness to fulfillment, Jesus came to give us abundant life. Ask him to help you experience it. And I wanted to end here because um, if we're honest, there are many out there who do feel empty and we want fulfillment. What is it that gives us purpose? What is it that fills us up? From emptiness to fulfillment. That is the devotion here that they're trying to unpack. But how would you answer that question? What gives you purpose and hope? What takes you from emptiness to fulfillment? Uh, Over at In Touch Ministries, they write, everyone feels a sense of emptiness, a yearning for something, for someone. That someone is God himself. Today's passage about the Samaritan woman teaches several important points about fulfillment. So uh, if you've got time and you're looking for something to read today, go to John chapter 4, verses 33, uh, sorry, verses 3 through 22. It's the story of the Samaritan woman. You remember Jesus. It's also called the woman at the well. Um, yeah, you, he comes up, Jesus goes out to the well and he's thirsty and he shows up. He First of all, it's amazing that Jesus goes through Samaria. Jews didn't do that. They, in fact, took a longer route just to go around it. But Jesus goes to there and he's getting a drink. The disciples have gone to find food. So Jesus is by himself and he encounters a Samaritan woman. Now, there's so much scandal in this. Why is this Samaritan woman at the well in the middle of the day by herself? Probably because she's been ostracized from even her own people. She's done something. So now she's out, not with the group of women in the morning, but she's out by herself getting water at the well. Again, we mentioned before, it's in Samaria. Jewish men did not talk to Samaritan women, especially Jewish rabbis did not talk to Samaritan women. In fact, in the story, you see the Samaritan woman surprised that Jesus is talking to her. And Jesus just says, basically, I'm thirsty. Can I have a drink? But he's got much bigger purpose here. Because what does it tell us that Jesus um, basically reveals who he is for one of the first times to this Samaritan woman to the point that then she leaves her um, her jar there and runs back to her village? You have to see this man that I met. He knew things about me. She testifies about Jesus and then they all come out and a revival breaks out. In Samaria, his disciples are very confused by this. I'd encourage you to go read the story, John chapter 4, verses 3 through 22. But uh, over at In Touch Ministries, they want to talk about several important points about fulfillment that we get from this story. Number one, filling our emptiness is important to God. Jewish people didn't travel through Samaria because of their disdain for them. Yet Jesus chose to travel there because he knew a Samaritan woman was ready to hear about her father's love, about the father's love. Filling our emptiness is important to God. Next, uh, Stanley writes, our attempts at happiness often leave us feeling hopeless. The woman at the well had been married five times, but all her marriages had ended. Each one likely left her feeling lonelier than before. There's something about her that she married over and over again. She was looking for something and all of them um, ended. And now she's living with another guy. Scandal. 
and there must have been a hopelessness, a pain. You can it comes through the pages when you hear her words. Next, God knows our pain. When the woman admitted she didn't currently have a husband, Jesus showed that he already knew her situation. He demonstrated an awareness of her hurt and longing. You don't have to hide your pain from your heavenly father because he already knows. He knows what you're going through. And he says, I'm with you always. He invites us to cast all our anxiety, cast, cast all our pain, cast all our loneliness, cast everything upon him because he cares for us. And lastly, Charles Stanley writes, Jesus can satisfy our, our yearnings, our longings. Once the woman realized what was missing, Jesus revealed how to live a full life. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never be thirsty. Do you ever feel like the Samaritan woman dissatisfied with life and thirsty for fulfillment, acceptance, and love? Charles Stanley says, surrender to God and allow his love to flow through you. Only then will you experience true and abundant life. John 10, 10, Jesus says, I have come to bring life and life to the full, abundant life, he says. I have come to bring abundant life. Do we believe that abundant life is found in Christ? And if we do, then, uh, then we go and we, um, to what we said earlier, we abide in the vine. We draw near to him. Do we believe that when we draw near to Christ, that that's where we find abundant life? Do we believe that when we draw near to Christ, when we are connected to the vine, when we're abiding in the vine, that that's where we find the hope, the fulfillment, the purpose, the joy, the peace that all of us long for? See, we go searching for it and the things of this world leave us empty. They leave us empty. But do we believe that it's in Christ and Christ alone that we will find abundance. The story of the Samaritan woman in John chapter four, I'd encourage you to go read it. Jesus met her where she was. He called out where she was looking for fulfillment, for meaning, for purpose. He offered her living water and a revival broke out. She was never the same. Her townspeople were never the same because they too met Jesus. Good word there from Charles Stanley grateful for his ministry and uh, that that reminder today that abundant life, true life is indeed found in Jesus Christ. Well, we're glad that you joined us on this day after the Super Bowl. Hopefully you have a great night tonight. Join us again tomorrow from four until six. Until then, we hope that you have a great evening. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.